Welcome to Preservation Maryland's PreserveCast. I'm your host, Nick Redding. Today, we're peering into the world of historic preservation through its very windows. Doug Clater is our guest today, and he's an expert on historic window preservation and has worked on fascinating projects all across our state. Doug shared with us the inside scoop on some of the many projects he's worked on, including at the Cozy Restaurant at Camp David. He also shared his views on some of the more exciting issues in historic window preservation, like lead paint, environmental, and energy-saving concerns, as well as the future of historic preservation work as a profession. Doug is a man with a lot to say. So let's dive right into PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Doug Clater is a historic preservation craftsman and instructor in historic preservation trades, including carpentry, masonry, plastering, painting, and historic material disassembly and salvage. He has over 36 years of experience in working on and with old buildings. Based out of Frederick, Maryland since 1977, he's worked on many historic buildings in Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. Recently, he's been focusing on historic window restoration, including overseeing a class that Preservation Maryland helps sponsor on window restoration given at the Thermont Historical Society in Thermont, Maryland. Currently, Doug is working on the exterior restoration of the Camp Cozy Cabin in Thermont, Maryland. Welcome to PreserveCast, Doug. Thank you for having me. Appreciate being here. So you have been at this for quite a while. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I think it's interesting for people to understand sort of what brings people to preservation. How did you end up really having a career in historic preservation? Well, I guess it uh, it stems back about three generations. My my grandmother planted the seed in me when I was very young, the history seed. Mm-hmm. She would uh, tell us about uh, her family background, and that eventually evolved into genealogy. But it was a, a fascinating time for me as, as a small child to hear her descriptions of travels in in america when transportation what wasn't what it is today right now is she from maryland no she was from uh, from virginia down Mm -hmm. in orange county virginia and she would uh, talk about traveling over the mountains in virginia uh, in an old hupmobile that had a hand crank starter so that (laughs) really takes it back to the to the early days of of motoring and uh, and those were the kinds of uh, things that, that she told me about. But uh, as I got older and that my grandparents were still able to, to travel, uh, they took me to historic house museums uh, in Virginia and in Maryland and, um, and really got to talking about old buildings um, in general. It was something that as, as I got older and I went into the workforce, I decided it was that that was what I really wanted to do was to work on old buildings. And so is that how you started? That was the beginning of your career? I, it, in, in old houses. I was uh, wow uh, a Navy veteran, and I, mm-hmm. I, uh, I spent time in the U.S. Navy Seabees, and I, I learned construction trade skills at that time. I, I, I went in as a plumber 
And when I got out of the Navy, I, I went to work as a plumber for plumbing companies and uh, did that for a couple of years and, uh, and learned an awful lot about construction and new construction, uh, civilian construction, much different than government construction mm -hmm. that I was familiar with. Yeah, I, but, uh, I was able to uh, decide that uh, plumbing, although something that was very useful and and would be good for me, people really didn't care what it looked like. They <laughs> only wanted to, to know whether it worked or not. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I wanted to do something that, that was to be seen. So what was your first true preservation project that you worked on? Well, in, in Frederick, I left the plumbing trade. I, I gave my, my employer about uh, 10 minutes notice, and I, I said, I've just been hired by a man who restores log cabins. And I went to work for... Uh, a man in, in Frederick at Ever 80 Square, um, and I went to work with Richard Gwynn, and we disassembled and moved and reconstructed a log building there on the Shab Row project there. That was my first real uh, experience in, in carpentry, working with carpentry skills. Uh, Richard is an excellent carpenter, and an excellent teacher and one of, right. my, one of my mentors. I spent two years working with Richard, and then I ventured out on my own, and I formed a, a company, or at least I got a home improvement license uh, <laughs> in, the, in the name of Renaissance Restorations. And I owned that company for 15 years and took on uh, lots of different projects in Frederick City, uh, particularly. Buildings of note that I worked on and, and had a hand in, the Schifferstadt Architectural Museum. I right. restored the 18th century cooking fireplace there. That was a, a really exciting early project. Right. And for those listeners outside of Maryland, Schifferstadt is a, uh, a historic house museum in the city of Frederick, Maryland, sort of in the center of the state and is a phenomenal early Germanic colonial structure. Yes. Um, and Schifferstadt, the name coming from, the, can you give the them the background? That comes, uh, the, the man that built the house was a, a Joseph Bruner, mm -hmm. and he uh, came from the town of Schifferstadt in Germany. Right, which is today the sister city of Frederick, Indeed right? Indeed it is. That's yes. correct. Okay. Wonderful. So you worked on Schifferstadt, which for Schifferstadt was just everybody one. in Frederick knows Schifferstadt. And uh, I, one of my early projects with Renaissance restorations was the uh, the Barbara Fritchie House. Mm -hmm. uh, well, actually, it was the Hauer House right next door to um, the Barbara Fritchie Museum there right. in Frederick. And the Hauer House was the home of the native, I mean, the maiden home of Barbara Fritchie. Her her maiden name was Hauer, and she grew up in that house and spent her life there. Right. And and again, just a little bit of background for those people listening from outside of Maryland, Barbara Fritchie, which is, uh, in at least in Frederick and in other parts of Maryland, sort of a household name, supposedly, unfurled a American flag when Confederate General Stonewall Jackson was coming through town in 1862 and uh, leaned out of her window and, and shook her fist at him and said, shoot if you must this old gray head, but spare your country's flag. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, just last night, uh, I was at an event hosted by the Osherman Foundation, and they've just paid for a documentary on Barbara Fritchie. And you can go to barbarafritchie.org, wow. and you can watch the documentary okay. about her. So pr pretty neat. 
there, there's some debate about whether or not that happened because she was 95 at the mm-hmm. time. Um, but there was a poem written by John Greenleaf Whittier mm-hmm. about Barbara. And obviously you uh, had a hand in, in, in restoring that structure. Indeed. Um, it was very exciting. This was an early window restoration project for me. We took the, uh, the sash out of the openings of the windows and we removed all the paint. We took the glass out of the sash we made repair to the mm-hmm. sash reglazed all the windows and then repainted and then we then dealt with the the jams and the you know the other aspects of the facade of the of that building it was a, a pretty good project lasted for uh, about a year or so because after we did the the windows uh, then we took on the shutters and if anybody's ever had a hand <laughs> uh working on shutters you know uh, how uh, lengthy that process can be. Yeah. In that particular case, we took and disassembled each shutter and stripped each louver individually, and then reassembled and strengthened. Wow. And someone pay, was willing to pay for that. Too. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. That's, That's a uh, that phenomenal was, <laughs> property owner. <laughs> it was. And they, the owner of the Barbara Fritchie Museum, right, as well. And they, uh, that was a. A real good project for me. I, I, I enjoyed working that. But I also worked on the Historical Society of Frederick County, mm-hmm. restored the uh, back porch on that. That took about eight months of some mm-hmm. very serious work uh, involving different disciplines that I really hadn't had but had to, had to learn in the process of, of doing the work. Work with epoxies right. and other consolidants that take help to take care of rotten wood. That was a, a big first for me. And so you've described a lot of structures from the early and mid part of the 19th century, but you've had a hand, I presume, in some 20th century structures as well. Uh, yes. Um, I have to think about it. because I guess the one we <laughs> the one we mentioned the camp oh, camp cozy right oh, the, that's, well, a, that, that's the that's one the I'm most recent one currently right? working on it was yeah, built yeah. in 1929. Uh, the cozy cabin, of course, is the sole surviving intact structure. Well, there might be a couple of them that were moved somewhere earlier else. and are used as yeah. outbuildings in Thermont somewhere. But, but uh, it was part of the cozy restaurant uh, hotel, mm-hmm. um, which was torn down this past year, um, and yeah, a, a big, lot of history loss. was yeah. lost in Thermont. But this particular building was was intact and it was small enough about 10 by 15 or so that's real small and and it could be picked up in one piece and so the the demolition contractor graciously moved it up to the property of the Thermont Historical Society and this is a motoring cabin so this is from the early days of motoring across the country yes. this was sort of a roadside hotel that mm-hmm. grew into a restaurant and mm-hmm. sort of a little mini empire there in mm-hmm. Thermont it and, was and yes. for folks outside of the the state Thermont is also home to Camp David or probably at the time when when all that was constructed was known as Shangri-La which is the uh, mm-hmm. sort of the uh, the early the, earlier the, name the of the mountain of, home uh, of the, the president president Roosevelt uh, FDR started Shangri-La and right. and Dwight Eisenhower, Dwight, uh, President Eisenhower named it Camp David after his son, uh, right. grandson David. And so that's sort of Thermont's place in history. And there was Indeed, a lot of people traveling through that area because of that as well. And many historical figures of note uh, certainly dined at the at the cozy restaurant, and people like Winston Churchill and 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 other notables that. Of course, in more recent times, when they had the Camp David Accords, they all right. cozy was the center of uh, information 
being disseminated. Right. And it so, was a, so your your involvement in preservation really has spanned everything. It sounds like from you know French and Indian War all the way to Winston <laughs> Churchill. So I have worked you've, on. You've uh, touched quite a bit. Some of the earliest buildings. Um, one of the uh, buildings I've been involved with that really is of historic note is the Beatty Kramer House mm-hmm. uh, just outside of Frederick. It was a uh, Dutch-built timber frame that um, probably dates into the 1720s. We really don't have a hard and fast date on its construction, mm-hmm. but it is a, a one-of-a-kind style of architecture in Maryland. Um, we don't have Dutch architect timber Not frames here. No, no, we've got a lot of log buildings and uh, and other ones, masonry, but... Uh, not like this one. And so we've been involved with that for for over well, 25 years since we first discovered its uh, its importance. And as far as preservation is concerned, it's still here today because we found it. And this is Frederick County Landmarks. Yes, a local Frederick County Landmarks, Fez- Landmarks Society that uh, um, foundation actually that uh, owns the building now and uh, has been its steward since we were able to rescind a, a, a death sentence for it. It, it. it had been planned to use it for practice for the fire department. Which is so often, unfortunately, is the case. It, it does happen, but uh, we were able to, uh, and with uh, Mr. Joe Lubazinski, whose inquisitive mind wanted to know more mm-hmm. about what made this building tick, and he got permission to go in, and, and uh, we found some very interesting rare items like casement windows in mm-hmm. the building, which are unheard of in here in, in, in Maryland. So now you, uh, and I know this because I follow you on Facebook and you're uh, prolific in your postings about uh, the beautiful place in which you currently live. Mm-hmm. And it's a unique program as well, from what I understand, and mm-hmm. uh, that some people even within Maryland and certainly outside of the state not be, might not be familiar with. Where, where do you live and, well, and what's the I, interesting I relationship with with my With my... Um, my significant other, my girlfriend, Michelle Smith, mm-hmm. who is, in fact, the resident curator of the property. Uh, she started the project of restoring the historic Widmire House before I, I came along, before she knew me mm-hmm. with, with her, her ex-husband. And they did a lot of work to the building prior to, to their marriage going south. And, and I was... Uh, must have looked very attractive to Michelle because uh, I knew how to scrape paint and <laughs> do windows and and uh, every store building. Right, and, and so now resident curatorship for those that don't know, this is a property that's actually owned by our State Department of Natural Resources. Yes, and and our DNR has like many natural resource agencies has more historic properties than they know what to do with, mm-hmm. and so you can apply to to be a curator and actually live in this property rent and mortgage free but you in in exchange you take on the onus of restoring and, and caring for this historic structure yes that's that's correct so and this one is out near this is out in, in fort, western maryland fort frederick state park big pool maryland yes in big pool yeah beautiful area washington county it's a it's a gorgeous place and the, the house uh, has about four and a half acres associated with our curatorship and but it adjoins the the 1500 plus acres of, of Fort Frederick State Park right and it it's a lovely place really for for us to live because we can we take advantage of the walking trails throughout the 
uh, the park, and it's located right alongside the CNO Canal and the Potomac River. So yeah. it's a, it couldn't be in a better place. It's a, it's a lovely location. And for those who are interested, the curatorship program actually has a number of properties that are available right yes, now. Yes, they, they are. So mm-hmm. if, if there's someone listening who wants to take on one of these projects, mm-hmm. there are projects out there for you to take I would, on. Uh, I would talk to Mr. Peter Morell yeah. at the Department of Natural Resources. DNR, and uh, he can certainly... He can put you in a place. Yes. He can find you something, particularly Mm -hmm. if you want to get your hands dirty. And now, so speaking of getting your hands dirty, a lot of people shy away from doing a lot of these projects themselves. Obviously, you have a long experience. So the idea of going in and and tearing out a window and um, popping it out of its the sash, taking it out of the out of the wall and and completely redoing that that window, that obviously doesn't scare you. You, You've done that many, many times. Sort of old hat. Um, but for someone who is, you know, not familiar with that kind of technology and, and is maybe a little bit concerned or thinks they couldn't do that, I mean, is there any advice for them? Would you, would you say I that would, they could uh, do it? Yes, I would say, well, be brave <laughs> right. and, and, and be prepared to uh, have it be a long, drawn-out process. Right. Having to reinvent a wheel or having to learn something on your own is difficult. Um, it's certainly possible. And, and it was that way with me. I didn't really have anyone, any one particular person or, or that could really teach me the nuts and bolts of, of doing work with windows and with paint removal, uh, which I see as the biggest single hurdle to historic preservation. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to um, just dig in um, and, and start to, to work on these windows. And in the course of doing hundreds of historic window sash, uh, you learn all about products right. and materials that uh, are, are available and, and what's, you know, the work practices that the, you know, the general populace employs to, to do this work. Right. And that can be an issue with the historic preservation. Right. But I guess you would suggest then sort of like you, what you did with Preservation Maryland, maybe if you're interested in doing this, taking a class. And Indeed. there are there are a number of classes out there. Oftentimes they're either free or, or just a few bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, it sounds like, is, you know, learn from someone else's mistakes, I guess. Well, it <laughs> certainly saves a lot of time. Right. Um, right. And, and heartache and failure because uh, indeed that I experienced all of those. uh, But once uh, the voila moment came when I developed a technique for removing paint that did not do any damage to the historical material, Mm -hmm. because many, many times people damage the fabric, right. just trying to get the paint trying off. Trying to get the paint. And also dealing, and people are, are scared and are worried about lead paint and mm-hmm. lead paint mm-hmm. getting out. The lead paint issue for historic preservation is, is very serious. It's also very serious in all the rest of our, our built environment from uh, prior to 1978 when they passed a law when disallowed lead, right. lead in paint. But Due to the fact that it's all over in our environment, mm-hmm. it, it is something that we really need to be aware of. And the process of removing it has to be done in such a fashion as to protect not only the worker who is doing the work, right. but also the environment that it's done in. Right. You don't want to just spray lead paint dust. flakes and dust, dust, dust all over the, the place. Dust is the biggest, biggest concern. And I'm of the opinion that uh, a lot of this could have been avoided 
had we spent a bit of time being more fastidious in cleaning these houses. If people were taught cleanliness skills, how to, how to really clean, the failing paints would, wouldn't have been such an issue because they would have been cleaned regularly with the, the windowsills and, and cleaning in general. Right. I don't think people have been taught how to clean. <laughs> so cleaning is a preservation skill. It is. It's a, a paramount preservation skill. And you learn how to keep it clean. Every, everything else follows suit, right. including the work that you're trying to do. So lead paint alone shouldn't be a reason someone should be scared of saving a historic window. Indeed, because right. it can be removed and it can be captured when it's generated. When right. the lead paint is being scraped, I use a, a, a HEPA vacuum cleaner right over the scraper. And as I'm scraping, the, the paint chips go into a self-contained unit that can be properly disposed of. That's not 100%. Failproof. I mean, there's still a small percentage of paint that gets out into the work area. But in, in regularly cleaning at that and every day, I, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm not as particular or fastidious about the type of, of protections that we need with our clothings because of the, you know, working in Tyvek, uh, Tyvek coveralls and, mm -hmm. and things that, that protect the worker completely from any lead dust. If in the process of removing this, you capture it at generation, uh, it doesn't get into the environment and it doesn't get all over the worker. Right. So and that's, that's a work practice that really needs to be addressed. And then right. in seeing it in, in actual use out in, in the field, it's, it's abhorrent what I see happen. Even though people have been educated in the, in the dangers of this, the, the shortcuts that people take in the right. process... Uh, are very detrimental to the environment and to themselves. So it's important to be safe, but, but it, it, it is. But yeah. uh, how how you are safe and and but you, you still have to get the work done, right? And if it's a ninety five degrees on a Baltimore afternoon and and you've got two weeks to get this done, you really can't get the work done in in that environment. That's been my personal experience with mm -hmm. with with dealing with the issue. Let me ask you something else about windows. I mean, one of the other things as far as, you know, technology is concerned, and, and that's sort of what we're looking at with this um, series of podcasts, sort of the intersection of technology and historic preservation. And that can be defined in a lot of different ways. We just did an interview on on drones, and, and now we're talking about sort of a, a more basic but a very important technology like windows and the actual artistry and craftsmanship that goes into caring for those, which is a technology in and of itself. But a lot of people, you know, they're they're sort of I don't maybe use the term suckered in by window salesmen and and people who want to make the case that you know these new vinyl windows they're going to save you so much money and you know the data is there that shows it's not a return on investment that you're going to see very soon um, and it costs a lot and and you lose a lot of character associated with the building but one of the the cases that they make is that well there's there's no way to make a wood window as energy efficient as as a vinyl window could ever be and and also they're they're so warm and comfy and you won't have any drafts mm -hmm. but obviously we know as preservationists that's probably not the case that we can do that with wood windows have you done that before have you weather stripped and all uh, those sorts of things weather stripping is a key factor to historic wooden windows storm windows uh both exterior and and or interior mm -hmm. storm windows uh really can make that window as energy efficient as a vinyl window, according to their specifications. But I want to say something that 
I think America has been sold a bill of goods on these replacement windows mm-hmm. and the energy efficiency that is lost in a historic drafty old window. Yes, when a window has been allowed to deteriorate and doesn't receive maintenance and the glazing's falling out and window panes are cracked and other you know, aspects of, a, of, a, of an old window that really has been neglected for a long time, yes, it loses its, its thermal efficiencies. But I'm also a believer in fresh air. Now, Fresh air, when you're paying for heat and electric bill, you know, kind of flies in the face of, of the economy of it. But uh, I think that I have uh, in our window, I can speak from the experience of the last 10 years in the historic Widmeyer house with no storm windows and wooden windows that have been restored, but without weather stripping, um, that function freely uh, and frictionless, basically, in, the, in their uh, openings. Mm-hmm that they uh, they allow a significant amount of air into the building for fresh air. Right. We know that a too tight of environment, you know, can trap illness and disease and, you know, dust in particular and right. mold and other right. things. I actually talked to someone, interesting you bring this up, I, I was talking to someone who builds new homes and new homes are being built so tight now that they actually have to have air exchange units um, to, add to bring to, to add well. it to the, and they have to by code <laughs> because they're so tight. They they literally encapsulate the building. We've gotten to the point where we've made everything so tight. Now we actually have to have a mechanical unit to bring things in and out. So well, oh, you don't need that at the Widmer house. No, I I, not at all. <laughs> and in fact, we we burn wood. We have a, a wood stove mm-hmm. for our. Primary heat. Now, do you chop the wood yourself? Oh yes. So it oh, heats yes. you twice. Oh, when and when you when you load it, unload it, bring it in the house, <laughs> haul out the ashes. Right. <laughs> there's there's a lot to that, but it's a way of life that I've lived now for over thirty years, and as long as the good Lord permits me to be able to cut my own wood and do that work, I will because it's a, it's a wonderful way of of living, and I I have been very healthy. I've been blessed with good health. Uh, we don't get sick. We don't have respiratory illness, uh, unless one of the granddaughters brings it from the elementary school. But <laughs> <laughs> that's just the way we get sick. But but not not from drafts or anything like that. And and uh, we're very fond of uh, wool blankets. Right. You know, lots of covers never hurt anybody. So you lead a historic life, not only in the buildings you preserve, but sort of the the way of living. Yes. Oh well. yes, indeed. Michelle and I, Michelle Smith, my girlfriend, and I practice living history, and we do open hearth cooking demonstrations in the 18th century. Cooking over the fire is something that I just love to do and have done ever since I was in the Boy Scouts back as, as, mm-hmm. as a youth. So we've talked a lot about windows because I think that's sort of a hot button issue. It's sort of the eyes of a house and increasingly we see them being lost and and we really feel like something as an organization is lost when those are gone. And we've talked about how that's definitely something uh, average homeowner can tackle, you know, take some classes, learn, learn your hand at it. If there was one preservation skill that you would suggest would be sort of the, the first thing someone should learn, though. Is it windows or or what type of preservation project would you say if someone wants to get their hands dirty and they want to try something out? A historic window. You would, would do windows. Would, or a door. Mm-hmm. And that that could be removed from the building. 
I would start with one at a time, even though you might have 30 windows that need to be done. Don't pop them all out. Do one. <laughs> uh, one thing I do at the, the Widmar house, I had to take a window out last week. We had a tree limb come down and sent a, a, a branch through one of the windows, and I had to replace the broken window. I took the window sash out, and I had a piece of plywood painted to look like a window. It was just plain piece of plywood that fit the opening. When we first started the project, I did four windows like that, and I painted four faux windows on the plywood. Mm -hmm. And that plywood migrated all the way around. We took four windows out at a time. And that way you don't have to rush through it in a day. Oh, indeed. You can and, and, take, take your time and do it right. And that can be weather stripped. You can use you know foam weather stripping around that plywood uh, in the wintertime. And I, mm -hmm. I strongly suggest that you can continue the project through the winter with that. And the painted plywood uh, adds a degree of uh, professionalism to the appearance of the project. Nobody wants to see a boarded up window. Right. A plywooded window on any building just doesn't read well. Right. And no one can tell the difference with that painted black and the white outlines of the window sash painted white. And it only takes a few hours to do that. So let me ask you, you've been at this for quite a while. You've seen the preservation movement change and grow and do some good things, probably do some bad things. With respect to the craftsmen who do this, of which you are one, do you feel as many and many do, or is, is this wrong to think that we have fewer craftsmen amongst us? There's sort of this sense that we're, we're losing these skills and these trades. Is that something that concerns you? Do you feel like there's enough people to replace my, those? It's my biggest concern, Nick. It really is. I'm 62. I'm 60, 61. Okay, not too... Not Let's too not get ahead bad. of ourselves. <laughs> 61. And... The average age of a bricklayer today was 58, the last I had heard that number of years ago. Skilled trades people in this country are not being replaced by a younger generation. That is a big cause for concern because who's going to do the work? Right. We can import our labor force. Right. Um, which this country has done for a number of decades since we've given up on the apprenticeship programs in this country, and it's cost us dearly. We do have many skilled craftsmen and many people who are concerned with this issue. I'm a member of the International Preservation Trades Network, or mm -hmm. PTN, and I demonstrate uh, window restoration for two years now at their international workshop that they hold once a year. And people from all over the world and the country come and see what the latest preservation craftspeople are doing and the products that they are using and the methods. It's very educational and that information is then disseminated you know, across the land. We need much, much more of that in a localized uh, mm -hmm. area. Well, I can tell you that Preservation Maryland actually is working on a uh, apprenticeship program. We're trying to uh, work with a group out in Catoctin Furnace mm -hmm. in Frederick County, Maryland, mm -hmm. that's interested in getting at-risk youth involved in learning preservation trades and kind of giving them a certification. So we definitely share your concern. Well, I mean, it I'm, is, I'm familiar it is, with that group as right, well. Yeah. I, uh, I spent some time this past year. Uh, one of the uh, buildings uh, that was part of the Cozy Restaurant 
was a uh, what they call the, a miner's cabin mm-hmm. that originally had uh, was constructed back when uh, the Catoctin furnace was still in operation. Right, and, and it was supposed to be a temporary structure, a temp- right? Very temporary structure, and it was. And uh, somehow it's lasted over a hundred years, almost. Well, they've. Uh, in 1929, uh, Mr. Wilbur Freeze, who started the Camp Cozy, picked this building up and hauled it up a couple of miles up into Thermont and then repurposed it as a rental cabin for Camp Cozy. And it went through many incarnations in, right. in that place. And you deconstructed this with the help of students of from students Silver from Oak the Academy. White, from Silver Oak Academy. Right. And my whole effort there was to instruct them on the disassembly of historical materials or materials in general mm-hmm. so that those materials could then be utilized again. Uh, we pulled every nail from the cabin and, oh boy, it, it had three or more layers of materials that whenever they wanted to remodel, they just added another layer to the building. And we we had to systematically disassemble those layers and then pull the nails and there are buckets we've got right three or four five gallon buckets from the small building of nails i couldn't believe how many fasteners had but these used. students enjoyed the the experience they did and and it was so foreign to them and and the students uh, that attend there are f- residents from inner city right baltimore mm-hmm. um and have had run run-ins with the law and they've been given an opportunity to you know turn things around. Right. I strongly support the program because right. I think we've got to we've got to really target those individuals, but those young young guys were no different than any of the young people that I would see in, in any high school. Right. Today. And I think the positive takeaway from that though is that if given the opportunity to do this kind of work, they found it fascinating and many of them want to continue on with it. And I, so I think that the lack of craftsmen is something that we can tackle as a uh, you know as as a preservation movement, but we have to be serious about it. And education is the key. We got right. we got to teach those uh, and that that requires having hands-on knowledgeable people right. that can lead the instruction. Right. So as we sort of draw to our conclusion here, this will be a difficult question. It's a difficult question for everyone that we interview, but do you have a favorite Maryland building? Mm. That's tough. 37-year-long career restoring mm. places, and you've seen a lot, but is there yeah. something that stands out as just a really special place that you found to be really just fantastic? Well, one in particular is very near and dear to my heart, uh, and it is one that I invested a great deal of my time and energy on. The historic name of the building is Wolf's Delight. Mm-hmm. It was an 18th century log house and farm that was located uh, near Woodsboro, Maryland, okay. on a gravel quarry. And the gravel quarry is expanding their operation in this 18th century gem of a building, and Farmstead was in the middle of it. And so I had to make a decision. I was given the opportunity to move these buildings. And so I made the decision to, to do it, and it took four years of my, my life to pull every nail and move every board, and we saved every, when I say every material, we saved every material. Is it still standing today? No, the house is in, well, it is standing in piles. <laughs> okay. Uh, in safe storage. Um, to, to be continued? To be, to be reconstructed at some point in time. It's not only a, a favorite um, 
I really hate to walk away. I've yeah. been away from that building and project for 10 years now or more, and I really hate to walk away from the amount of effort that I put into that. And because we have all of the materials, each and every trade could be represented in the reconstruction of that. And I want to use that entire project. So if someone out education. there is someone out there is listening and they want to reconstruct a historic structure, you There's have the just the place for them. Yes, indeed. You have just the there building. There it is. And in, in it's a beautiful location on the banks of the Monocacy River in a large field and lots of room around it. And when it goes back together. When? Uh, a, when, it, when it goes back That's together. the optimistic preservation. Well, thing, yeah. God willing, and the, and the creek doesn't rise too much because <laughs> it's next to the river. <laughs> so if um, speaking of restoration rehab work, if people want to get a hold of you, if they want to talk to you about a project or they want you to come out and do a training for them, how can they get a hold of you? Is there a way for them I to have, find you? As you've mentioned previously, I have become pri- prolific on Facebook. Okay. And I can be reached through Facebook. Okay. Uh, I also have a, a secondary site okay. on Facebook called the Clater Historic Preservation Institute. All right. Which I hope will develop into you know, this place where people can come and learn and take away and then go back and then do their do their projects. So you can teach an old preservationist new tricks. You're on Facebook. They can find ah. you there. It was tough. I mean, it's tough, I, but, but you're good at it now. Well, I've, it's only about <laughs> three years now on, online, and prior to that, it was you know hammer and nails, and it's been an exciting ride, and I love my camera. <laughs> there we go. Well, Doug, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for everything you've done to preserve Maryland's unique and irreplaceable heritage. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate being here. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Ben and Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving.